Let's pray. God, after, after singing those praises, Lord, I can't help but just be so thankful for the lengths that you went to to save us. For those that, that you've called according to your name, that you've, you've forgiven and you've justified, you've sanctified, and God, the day is going to come when when we're going to be with you face to face, when our eyes will be open and we'll be able to see you in your glory, we can just sing, holy, 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 worthy is the lamb, and lay down our crowns before you and, and just and know you fully. God, thank you for saving us. Father, I would pray for our service today. God, I would pray that your word would be effective in our lives. Holy Spirit, that you would take your revelation and that it would transform us. God, that we would be better prepared for that day when we meet you. So God, I would pray that that your word would perfect us this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. It's the same as last week. Every week it just it takes a minute to, to make that transition from, from just feeling like you're standing in the presence of God and, and just pouring your heart out to Him and then having to move over and into this other section here. So you, know, you always have to just take a minute. You know, we could, uh, we could start this morning by just doing a little mental test. You know, as we sang those songs, many of them had to do with actually being in the presence of God. Or even open my eyes so that I can see you. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Because one day you're going to, blessed are those that have been forgiven and God has imputed Christ's righteousness on you. And one day you're going to stand in the presence of God and you're going to see him for who he is. You're going to see him. And... As we sing, holy, 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 there's that passage in Revelation where the elders are sitting there and they're crying out, holy, 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 and they're laying their crowns down. And, and you have this picture of being in front of the glory of God and just seeing him for who he is. And how often do we just kind of sit and, and think, what would it be like to be sitting in the presence of the Shekinah glory? The fire came down and filled the tabernacle and there the glory of God was in front of the people. What would that have been like? Would that have just been like somehow magnificent, somehow just, just awe-inspiring or standing in front of that mountain when God descended on the mountain and it's just... And it says that we're just fearful and people just said, Ah, Moses, uh, you go up there because uh, we don't want to go up there. But just the awe-inspiring nature of being... There in the presence of God. Wow. What would that, what would that be like? And, and then you, you have to get your theology straight because eventually you say, wait a minute. I'm in the church. I'm sitting here worshiping with the very presence of God, the body of Christ. Each one of you that are in Christ have, have the Holy Spirit. And I'm never without that presence. But sometimes, what is it that, that kind of dampens you? You think of that passage that says, now we see through a mirror darkly, but then we're going to see face to face. 
You know, there's so many times when through your day, the, the tarnishment of, the, of just life kind of dulls what you're seeing. And, and it's times like this morning that we can come and say, God, remove the distractions. And so we can just open our eyes that we can see you in your glory. That has nothing to do with the message this morning. That was that minute that I needed. Because <laughs> it's just, thank you for that worship team. Well, we are in Genesis 14. For those of you who are visiting, my name is Chris Richards. I'm one of the pastors here at Windsor Community Church. And, and we march through a book of the Bible. And right now we're marching through Genesis. And last week, we got into Genesis 14. And we went through and, and finished up Genesis 14. But we're going to kind of backtrack. And we're going to play a little topical message this morning. Because there is this odd character that shows up in Genesis 14, that we kind of need to saddle him up and ride him through the rest of Scripture. That was for you, Dino. And, and, and see what impact this, this character has as God threads him through, uh, through Scripture. And, and I've told a couple people as I've been studying this, you know, I could, I could get saved reading a passage like this. Because it's interesting, the word tells us that the Bible is God-breathed and useful for... The Bible tells us over and over again that the... The writers were carried along by the Spirit of God and that this Word of God is, in fact, God's revelation to us. And he carefully put it together so that you could know him. Very carefully. And when you see passages like the one with this odd character Melchizedek in it, you think, wow, God took so much care to make sure that at any moment throughout history... He, he's taken away any of the doubts. He's, he's put all the things in there that are necessary for anybody to stand at the foot of the cross and say, yeah, I do believe you are who you say you are. And so I just love this passage. All right, so we're going to read Genesis 14, just a smidgen of it. We're going to read verses 17 through 19 just to get a a piece on Melchizedek again, and then we are. We're going to jump on Melchizedek and watch him move through Scripture and see what God does with this guy. So Genesis 14, starting in verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Catalamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shevet. This is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So last week, we took a a long look at that whole passage. And this week, we're going to just go and see What's going on with this Melchizedek fellow? So there are a couple of places in Scripture that Melchizedek shows up. First, here in Genesis 14. It's just an odd meeting. Abram goes out and slaughters these kings to rescue Lot. And we saw that two weeks ago when uh, the message there was serving the undeserving, where Abraham goes out and and recovers Lot, who was taken by this Catalamer, and he he slaughters these kings and he recovers Lot and he brings him back and and when they're sitting there in this in the valley, the kings of Canaan come to essentially pay homage to him, 
And we have this interaction, this contrast between Melchizedek, who brings a royal feast to them, and this king of Sodom who comes arrogantly and offers him the keys to Canaan. Right, so we see this contrast there, and that's what we talked about last week, as Abram chose uh, to, to not take the keys and allow God to work through uh, his promise. So that's Genesis 14. And then there's the silence. Melchizedek goes away after these three verses. And you don't hear about him again all the way through Moses' writings, all the way you just don't hear about this Melchizedek guy anymore. Until we get into this passage in Psalm 110 where David says, the Messiah is going to be in the order of Melchizedek. So this, this odd character that showed up in Genesis 14 that just come and brings some bread and wine and gets a tithe and blesses Abram, now is being placed in this passage along with the Messiah, saying the Messiah is going to be in the order of Melchizedek. And then we have silence again, and he doesn't show up. Now, in Matthew 22, we know that that passage from Psalm 110 is prophetic, because Jesus himself says, who do you say that uh, the Son of Man is? And they said, oh, he's the Son of David. The priests and Levites come to Jesus and say that. And then Jesus says to him, well, then why is it while David is speaking in the Spirit or writing in the Spirit says, I said to my Lord. And so Jesus puts it out there for us that this is a prophetic passage in Matthew 22, that the Psalm 110 is. And so we have this thing about the Messiah is going to be in the order of Melchizedek. And I've said that nine times because that's a a phrase that's just got to get burned into our heads as we move forward. Well, then it shows up again. In the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament... Really, chapters 5 through 7, we have these statements, a rather uh, extensive passage about this Melchizedek and what it means to be the order of Melchizedek. And so what we have to know is, what is it that's happening in Hebrews, and why does Melchizedek show up again in Hebrews? Now, this is the part that's exciting to me. You have it here in Genesis, way back in the beginning, this this mysterious Melchizedek guy appears. And then somewhere along the line, we have some prophecy that the Messiah is going to be in this order of Melchizedek. Only the Spirit could orchestrate that. Just think through that for a minute. I mean, think we have 1400 BC, you have nine. I mean, you have so much time between these and even oral tradition and all that to write, the Messiah will be in the order of Melchizedek. That just doesn't make any human sense to write that down. And then in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews to come up and say, okay, here's why God said he has to be in the order of Melchizedek. And so that's why I just get so excited about a passage. When I say I could get saved by reading this, because you just see God threading very purposely this nearly insignificant thing that you see in Genesis. It just doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal. A king comes and and it just doesn't feel like it's that much. And then to find out all of these Hebrews, all these Jews are struggling with leaving the system, needing to know that that there is a new priesthood and there is a new... I'm getting ahead of myself. But God putting that there in the end, knowing that these, these Jewish folks were going to have a very hard time coming to Christ and leaving the old way. And poof, up comes this guy, Melchizedek, who is more important than the initial priests. 
that's a God thing. So there are the three main places that this shows up. So here's where I have to put out a warning because I'm a systems person. And I do, uh, well, first off, we, we all come with preconceived notions. We're going to speak about the priesthood. And when I say the word priest, there's a number of us right away who have a picture in our head of whether it's a movie, a newspaper article, whether we've been in a, a church system that has had priests that, that operated in a, a rather different way. We all have kind of a preconceived notion of what a priest is. And so this morning I have to say, I know it's impossible to totally remove that, that schema, but, but kind of put some barriers around it for a little while so that we can add what the, what the scripture says about the purpose of priests. Hey, that's the first warning. And the, and the second one is really personal to me because I get real excited when I see systems start working. When I start understanding them, go, oh, oh, oh. I mean, when I finally found out what the Pythagorean theorem was and, and how it worked and, and how I could use it and, and where it is. And, okay, I'm a little bit of a math geek. And so I, it, just, it just so excites me. And, and I can get just as excited about the Pythagorean theorem as Christ drawing himself or us to himself through the priesthood and how all that works. And, and many of you are quietly sitting there going, yep, that's me. Okay? Because it's exciting to see how these systems start playing out. And when you, when you can tie a system all the way from Genesis to Hebrews, one of the last books, you, that's quite a system. You've, you've gathered a lot of information there. And you're seeing how there's a major thread through Scripture. And you can easily start celebrating the system and not the Savior. It's very easy to do that. And there's numerous ways you can tell if that's happening. This system we're going to talk about today is meant to draw you very close into the presence of God. And when we're done with this message, and you go home and you ponder it and you ask the Holy Spirit to work that out in your life, find out what happens in your mind. Does it start popping and going, wow, that's cool how those little pieces work together? Or does it make you go, wow, I really, I really can enter into the throne room of God. I can like go behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies where the Shekinah glory lives. I can, I can be there. I can really, when I'm worshiping, I can, I can be in the presence of God. God, show me what that looks like. I want to I be there. And you're kind of like a, a, a dog straining at a leash trying to get away because you just want to be there. Right? That's... That's what you feel like. And so the, the warning, the, the careful there is that we don't get into the system, that we actually see God putting this together. All right, so a couple of foundational things. Before we look at the priesthood, we have to understand what the human problem is, essentially what the gospel is. God is holy. We have to start there. Let's all say it together. God is holy. Without starting there, you, you, the next step doesn't matter. Okay? The next step is sin separates. Sin separates. When, when Adam sinned and it went into the human race, we are no longer with God. It was God's plan that we were with God and God is restoring that. And one day, one day, straining that we may, we are going to be forever glorified and we're going to be in the presence of God. Okay? That is God's plan for us. But right now, in the practicality, because of sin, we are separated from God. 
And to understand the priesthood, we just perfectly have to understand God is holy and you are not. And you cannot move into his presence. It is hopeless for you as a sinful person to move into the presence of God. You can't have light and dark in the same room by definition. You turn the lights on the dark. It just doesn't exist. It's not, it's, it's not that it was annihilated or that it was condemned. No, it just isn't there. You can't have those things in the same place. Hey, same with God. You cannot have sin in the presence of God. And so we're separated from God, but God wants you near to him. And so immediately after sin came into the world, God started putting in progress to bring us near to him. It was never his plan that we were separated from him. And so we have the priesthood. The job of a priest was really twofold. One, to represent God to man. And I didn't, I didn't mix those words up. That's exactly how I meant to say it. The priest was meant to be a representation of God to man. When God called the Israelites in the Mosaic Covenant, he said, you are to be a holy nation, a nation of priests, so that you can go out and make known the glories of God. That's their job. Their job is to be, to be a representation of God to the entire world. We see that also in the New Testament. We see it in 1 Peter Two, two, that you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And what's your purpose? You've been brought from death to life so that you can make known the glories of God to the rest of the world. So the church now is this same royal priesthood. So as a priest, one of their jobs is to be a representation, a God with skin on, if you will, to the rest of the world. And the other one we're more comfortable with. Because we see the priests and their duties. The other piece of the priest is to bring the people to God. To be a mediator of sorts. We saw that the duties of the priests were to burn the sin offerings. To take the offerings. To do all the temple services. Okay? That's what we see normally as the duties of a priest. What the priest does. But it really is twofold. Okay? So the second piece of that is to bring men nearer to God. That's the charge that God gave the initial priest. So what we see priests in scripture, the whole priesthood in scripture. First we see the before Moa, before Moa. I did it. <laughs> I didn't say noses, I said Moa. That's even better. Okay. Dan's not here, so let's scratch that one from the tape. Uh, before Moses, you have Job, you have the patriarchs, you have this Melchizedek guy, you have Jethro, you have all these people that, that are working as priests of God Most High, and you see what they're doing. It's essentially the father or the patriarch who is standing in the gap for his family and being that representation. He's mediating between his family and God. So you see Abraham doing the sacrifices. Now, after Moses, if Abraham were to do the sacrifices not being a priest, he'd be stoned to death. In fact, if he even came near the altar to do that, he'd be stoned to death. Right? So it, before Moses, we, have, we, have, we still have this system. We see all the way back with Cain and Abel bringing sacrifices to God and them doing that mediation themselves. And then we have Moses. 
So when the law was handed to Moses, part of that law was a whole system of priests. Now let's see how this works out. When they were still in Egypt and they were about to do the exodus, the angel of death goes through and we have what's called Passover. When the angel of death passed over the Israelites because they had the blood on the mantle of their doors. Okay? So the angel of death passed over and the firstborn of all the Israelites were not killed. Well, because of that, God said, you need to redeem, give me the firstborn for ne- forever. Because the firstborn belongs to me. Right? And we see that in Exodus. We also see it in Numbers. when he re- And this is repeated over and over and over. The Israelites are to redeem the firstborn. And he says, but of the men... I don't, you're not going to give them to me. Instead, what I'm going to take is I'm going to take the Levites as that firstborn. So instead of taking the firstborn, I'm going to take the entire tribe of Levi. They're mine. And they're going to serve me as priests. And so we see this in the Old Testament. We see the Levites and Aaron specifically, we see them serving at the altar as priests. Okay? All right, am I losing anybody yet? It's starting to... Yeah, okay. We, we have to get this because we have to develop what the priesthood is for. Okay? Well, the priests, what were they doing? What they had to do is when there was a sin offering or these offerings because of the entire book of Leviticus. If you look through the entire book of Leviticus, it's about offerings and sacrifices. And God has put all of these things in place as types to show these people what's to come. Get ready for what the true presence of God is going to be like. And and we're going to make it kind of as natural as we can so you can see it. And so we see this all the way through the book of Leviticus, right? So the priests, all of these things they had to do, they had to be clean. They couldn't have a wart. I mean, there's all of these different things that would keep them from being priests. Well, the first thing is they had to be a Levite. In order to be a priest, you have to be from this tribe of Levi. In order to be a high priest or to serve at the actual altar, you had to be directly from Aaron. And Aaron was from a Levi. And so that's one piece. But then there's all of these different physical things. If you had any of these physical problems, you couldn't serve because you had to be spotless. Hmm. What's God doing? He's starting to show what it means to mediate between man and God. Now, does it say anywhere in the Bible that these priests needed to be holy men? That these priests actually had to have faith in God? That these priests actually had to revere God? It actually doesn't say that. It says they can't have leprosy. They can't have an elbow that's deformed or a bone out of it. They can't have all these physical problems. That would keep them out. But it never says that they actually have to be holy men. That's interesting. They simply are priests because they're Levites. That's why they're serving. They've been redeemed as the firstborn, and that's why they're serving. All right, so that's the mosaic. And and this goes on forever. This just kind of, it moves all the way until they go into exile. Now, after the exile, some goofy things happen, and I just cut this part out of the message. But you can read it in Ezekiel. A huge portion of Ezekiel is, is dedicated to what happened to the priesthood after they came back from exile into Babylon. 
And so we're going to just kind of cut that out because in the end, it was meant to be the same. They still served at the altar. They were still meant to be Levites. And then the ones that were doing the the priestly part were supposed to come from Aaron. That part didn't change. It's just the exercise of it changed a little bit. Well, then you get to the New Testament. And in the New Testament, just type in the word priest and do a search on the word priest in the New Testament. And what you see over and over and over is... The Levites and priests, this. The Levites and priests, this. The Levites and priests, this. Because they were still serving when Jesus came. It was a little different, but they were still serving in the temple, doing the sacrifices, and now kind of things are a little more messed up, but, but they're still serving when Jesus is there. Who is it that comes and continually tries to trap Christ? And who is it that when, when Christ was being condemned and led away, he was standing in front of the... High priest, right? Caiaphas at the time. And so there, there are numerous times we, we see in the New Testament the priesthood was still continuing through because the old system was still in place. They were still offering sacrifices. They were still doing all these things to try and, and cleanse themselves. Okay? And so the priesthood had this purpose. The purpose was to bring this holy nation of Israel back to God. That was their purpose. Now, whether they were men that had sin, whether they were holy men, whether they were, is irrelevant. They were Levites that God said, you are going to essentially reestablish this relationship between me and my nation, Israel. That's your job. You're going to be burning the sacrifices. You're going to be doing all of these things. Okay. That's the job of the priests. So from that, we can move on. What happened? Well, the Bible tells us there's a weakness. One of the weaknesses is this. The people would sin, and they'd bring a sacrifice. The priest would take the sacrifice, and he'd sacrifice it. Okay? And then he'd go home, because his tour was over, and the next priest would come. And guess what would happen? The people would sin, and they'd bring a sacrifice, and he'd sacrifice it. He'd go home, because his tour was over. And then guess what happened? This is going to get to be a really long message if we do this for a long time. This just keeps going on and on and on, because... The priests themselves could not perfect the people. They couldn't do it. God never intended for that to happen. God intended that this this was a type. It was showing the Israelites what was to come. What it looked like to have sin propitiated for. Have sin paid for by something else. A substitute. That's what, God, well, that's what God is showing them. And that there needs to be a mediator between you and God. So God is setting this whole thing up. And he did it all the way from the beginning when the priests had started. All the way to now, some 1,500 years later, we have this priesthood still working itself out. And it still has not perfected the people. There's a lot of goats got butchered. A lot of cows, doves, whatever else fits in that category. There was a lot of animals that God butchered for the sins of man. Because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And so they needed that mediator. Well, that's one weakness. Nothing could be, nothing could be changed over. Another weakness, a whole bunch of them. One, each of these are sinful. They're, they go into long categories of, of the first thing that a priest has to do when they try to do a sin offering for the people is they have to first offer a sin offering for themselves. They're sinful. There's no perfection here. 
And so you have these men that are sinful that have to go in and first offer a sin offering for themselves and then for the people. And they're just not perfect. And that's why this system is one of the reasons it's flawed. In fact, useless might be the right term other than what God has planned and what God is teaching the people through that. One other is powerless. Now, you have a, a number of words up there, and, and there's so many little things in Hebrews 5 through 7, or really 5 through 10, that show why the old system was there as a type just to show the people what's to come, what the new covenant, what's so glorious about the covenant that we live under. So that whole section of Hebrews is there. But the word there that catches me the most is powerless. You could have a, you could have a priest who is fully sincere about desiring to bring these people and actually perfect them before God. I mean, just really so desiring to see that their sin, that this would be the last offering and just be, be done with this so these people really could be perfected in the eyes of God and would not have to go through this anymore. Because when they go home and they have that thought or they do that thing, they're right back into grabbing another goat and coming right back to the altar. They can't ever be perfected. And so there can be that priest that so desires to see that come to an end because these people are just being tormented by sin. And can't ever get out of it. But no matter how sincere that priest may be, that priest is powerless to bring that about. And we feel that way a lot of times in, in different places that we might be. We want You so desire, you see somebody that's sick, and, and you so desire to have the power to just walk up and heal that person. But you're powerless. You see something about to happen, and you can't get there fast enough. You're powerless, and you just have to watch it happen or just know that it happened. All of us feel that sense of powerlessness, and all the way through, that's the word that could best identify this priestly system from Moses to Christ. God did not give the priesthood the power to make perfect the nation of Israel. What it was is a covering so that their sins could be forgiven for a time. But never could it perfect them. The other piece there is these priests are mortal. They're going to die. And they're going to go away. And another priest is going to have to come. In fact, it's more temporary than that. They only served for about 30 years and then they were done. And so even, even if they hadn't died, they did stay on as a priest. They kept the title, but, but eventually they're mortal. They're going to die. They can't just continue to add to do sacrifices for the people all the time. Okay? So what's the solution to this? In Psalm 110, it says, you know what? Here's the solution. There's going to be a Messiah, and this Messiah is going to be a different kind of priest. He's going to be in the order of Melchizedek, meaning he's not going to be a Levite. He's not going to be from Aaron. He's going to be of this order of Melchizedek, which means he's not actually a priest because the law makes him a priest because he was born from Levi. He's a priest because of an indestructible life, it says. He's not a legal priest. He's a priest because he was appointed by a promise. This Messiah is going to come and be the priest that we all need. 
Every hole that's in that system that the entire nation of Israel has seen up to this point. I keep having to come here every single week because I sinned again. And I gotta, and every year we come and we have this big festival and we let that goat run off. And all of these different things that we have to do over and over and over and over again is going to come to an end because that system is going to be cured by this Messiah who's a priest in the order of Melchizedek that will put it all to an end. Because he's going to be able to perfect us. He's going to give us whatever that sacrifice is, whatever he's going to do, it's going to end this system. And they didn't know what that is here. That's the cool thing about this progressive revelation. When he wrote this, he didn't. He had no idea what that even meant. He knew this is his priesthood, and he knows it's going to get replaced, and it's going to be perfect. But he didn't really know how all that was going to work out. And then Christ comes. And Christ comes, and he is the solution to this problem. He's in the order of Melchizedek, and he's the priest of a new covenant, a better covenant. So, a couple of things. The the Messiah is not to come from Levi. This Messiah is to come from Judah. So, already he's not in the order of the normal priesthood. He's not in the, the Aaron priesthood, because he's coming from a new line. And it says, there's nothing in Scripture that talks about Judah serving at the altar, which means it's a no-no. That's what it means. It means if, if somebody from Judah were to actually walk close to the altar, the Levites, who are also the, the guard, the police there, are going to jump him and throw him outside and stone him to death. Okay? You can't be from Judah and get near the altar. So you can't serve as a priest. You can't do that. But yet, this Messiah, who's going to be this priest, is going to come from Judah. How is he going to do that? You see the confusion? It's beautiful. He's just wrapping all this up nice and tight. But then the other piece is, he's not going to be a priest legally because he's not that descendant. He's going to be a priest because he has an indestructible life. Huh? Well, Melchizedek, we see this odd thing where Melchizedek doesn't have any genealogy. Now, the reason that's odd is because the the Israelites, the Hebrews are just... They're rock stars at keeping genealogies, right? We see that when you go to Matthew or Luke, where it just marches through the genealogy all the way to Christ. And so you're just guessing that if it wasn't for the flood, they could go from Abel, well, they probably could anyway, yep, from Adam all the way to whoever. Because they kept all those records. It's very important to them that they know because all their land... And every couple of years, they got to give the land back and go back to the land and, and how they reestablish their economy that way. It's critically important that you know where you're from and what your genealogy is. Which makes this Melchizedek guy even stranger. He's the king of Salem. He doesn't have a mom. He doesn't have a dad. And he never died. Now, okay, we know that's not true. But what we do know is it's not recorded. And so as far as the Hebrews are concerned, this man has an indestructible life. He, didn't, he never died. And he didn't have a mother and father. He just kind of popped into the scene. So we don't know who he is. All we know is he's greater than Abram. Because he blessed Abram and Abram gave him a tenth. And it tells us that the greater blessed the lesser. So that's all we know about this Melchizedek guy. And so when we say that Jesus is in the likeness of Melchizedek, we're saying he's indestructible. He doesn't have a normal lineage like other people, and he is never going to die. 
That's what it means to be in the likeness of Melchizedek. So Jesus is priest. Move through here a little bit. If, in fact, the two pieces of being a priest are represent God to the people, be a representation of God to the people, that's one. And the second one is that we bring the people near to God. That's the job of the priest. Does Jesus fit that mold? We have in Colossians 1, it says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You want to know God? Know Christ. I just want to know God. That's fine. Know Christ. Because Christ is the exact representation or the exact imprint, it tells us in Hebrews 1, of God the Father. You want to know who Jesus, you want to know who God is? Open up the Bible and see who Jesus is and you see God. In fact, Jesus even said that to his disciples. He said, you know what? How can you ask me to show you the Father? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus is the perfect representation of God to us. That's how we see God. We can't see into God is spirit. He's the invisible God. We can't just see him, but we can see Christ. He was one with us. In the beginning of the word, and the word was with God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I kind of jumped around and threw some verses together there. But he was one of us. Okay? If you've seen Christ, you've seen the Father. And so the first part about being the representation of God to man is certainly a piece of the office that Jesus fulfills. The second is, does Jesus bring man... To God. And one of my favorite verses, many people's favorite verses, is Romans 5.8. While you were still sinners, Christ died for you. Why? To bring you back to God. While you're just... Christ gave a sacrifice. Oops, there's that other piece. There's that other piece. Where we saw the service of the priests. And giving sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Well, Christ did that also. He just didn't have to continually do it. He gave a sacrifice once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? There it is again. To bring you near to God. What's the purpose of the Messiah coming? Here's the gospel in a nutshell, all wrapped up in this thing about the priests. You, God is holy, you are separated from God, and you need to be brought back to God. And how is that done? It's done by Christ and the sacrifice that he made. That's how you're reconciled back to God. Romans 10.9 If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Colossians 1.21, another piece of what Jesus is doing. He gave his life as a ransom for you. Why? He did it to present you holy to God. God is holy, you are not. You cannot be in the presence of God the way you are. And so when we say that Jesus imputed his righteousness, I almost sometimes just... I don't even know how to actually think of an example of being covered with Christ's righteousness so that I can walk into the throne. I can walk right into that Holy of Holies, whatever that is. I I can walk right into the presence of God and it's light and light because I have Christ's righteousness. Because what Christ's sacrifice did, he did it so that I could be presented to God as holy. 
I can do that. I, I no longer have to kind of hide off in the shadows and, and, and hope that, be scared that when God descends on the mountain, I don't want to go up there, Moses, you go. I don't have to do that. I can walk right up to the mountain and go right up there with him and say, you know what? I have the righteousness of Christ. My sins have been forgiven and Christ has imputed righteousness to me. I could just move right up there. Romans 8.34. What is Jesus doing for us now? It says that he's in heaven at the right hand of God and he continually intercedes on your behalf. There is one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. So the priesthood has changed. The priesthood has changed from these thousands and thousands of men who serve at the altar and burn all the different animals and make the sin covered. It's changed to this one man, God, who gave himself so that we don't ever have to do that again. The righteous for the unrighteous, one time, that we can be brought near to God. It's all done. So what? Here's where the system part has to has to kind of get some roots. Because that's what you just did. We just went through this whole thing and oh okay, priests and the and the priest did the sacrifice and, and then then God had where Jesus came and now he's the priest. Got it, so I can now play trivial pursuit with the best of them. Okay. But there is a so what to this. The only way, when we sing, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, you cannot be better prepared for being in the presence of God, practically, than if you're in the presence of God now. And if you don't know that you can be in the presence of God now, you never will be. You have to know that, you know what, I can sit here, and I don't even know exactly what it looks like because I see through a mirror darkly, but then I'm going to see face to face. I don't know exactly what that even really means. But what I do know is, is I do have Christ's righteousness, and, and somehow I can long to be in the presence of God. And that longing to be in the presence of God and that exercise of that longing is going to bring to me sanctification practically. It is going to change my life forever. That's where transformation comes from. Transformation does not come from moralizing yourself. Transformation comes from staring at the blazing glory of God and saying, that's my king, that's who I'm going to serve. I don't even see anything else. I'll walk up by the chairs. But that's exactly what brings transformation is looking at the glory of God. And in that, your desires begin to change. In that, your, your goals and your aspirations and who you are, because that's your king. It's not a system. It's just not a system of priests and do's and don'ts. It's the glory of God that you're living for, and that is transforming to your life. But you have to know that you can go into the presence of God. And I have to read this piece out of Hebrews 7. Verse 23, the former priests were many and numerous because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds this priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, grab onto this verse, memorize this verse. 
Meditate on it. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Not just save a little bit. This is one of those, we got to put an exclamation point on the end, Brother Shewitt. He can save us to the uttermost, those who draw near to him, draw near through him, the priest. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now I messed that up, I'm going to read it one more time. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. We, believers, can enter into that Shekinah glory that we see in the Old Testament when we read that. We can move right into the presence of God Almighty, the one who created the possessor of the heavens and the earth, it says in Genesis 14. The one who created everything, including that little tiny thing we call earth. And who cares intimately about each one of us and desires to reconcile us back to himself. Let's pray. Father, I would pray that your word and, and, and that blazing glory that is accessible to those of us who are entering through your name, that have given our lives to you, God, that it would just be a transforming power in our lives. God, your word tells us that those you called, you're going to sanctify. So, God, I would pray that in this, in this next week, God, as we meditate over this passage and, and meditate on, on who you are and how you've called us into that relationship with you, that, God, there would be that, that transforming power that we could live victoriously, even practically today. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.